How are you? Are you alive? It's good to see you. And a big welcome to those of you joining us over at Mission and East Abbey. Uh, baptism, what an awesome services those are. Uh, the next baptism services are going to be the weekends, November 25th, last weekend of November, first weekend of December, different weekends at each of the sites, so you can talk to your campus pastors and find out the dates and all that kind of stuff. But if you need to go through the waters of baptism, we'd love to see you up there the next time. But uh, what a great weekend. I've been looking forward to it uh, for quite a while. Uh, first weekend at Downs, we're at four weekend services, and it's been a cool uh, first weekend out. And then also to know Mission, you guys are back in two services. Services after the summer with one, and that was a packed house, and it was awesome. And of course, East Abbey was there last week, and so cool to see so many people gathering uh, at all of our sites, and what an encouragement to us. So we are back in the Gospel of John, and have also been looking forward to that. Uh, you will know if you were around last year uh, that we studied the first half of the book, so we took uh, three quarters of the school year uh, from the fall basically up through Easter, uh, through the first half, and then now we're going to tackle the second half this year. Uh, and I want to just back up uh, because I know that I myself don't remember what I say by Wednesday. Uh, so to try to remind you of what we talked about last year, you're like, oh, good luck. And we are not going to re-preach all those sermons, obviously. Uh, but you, if you want to get back online and listen to them, you know, it, it might help you sleep at night. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, you can follow up. But we're going to dive back into the middle. But I want to give a high level to just kind of set the context for this book. So just in case uh, you don't know the Gospel of John or you weren't here for the first half and you don't know the context, just at the 30,000-foot view. So very simply, John is one of four Gospels. So you open the New Testament, and the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four eyewitness testimonies of the life of Christ. So it's like four individuals who watched and learned and saw his ministry. They each tell many of the same stories, but from their own personal perspective. And what's interesting is the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics. They see the same, synoptic, synoptic. 70-80% of what they share in those three Gospels are the same stories from a different perspective. John's Gospel is unique in that John, 90% of the content in John's Gospel is unique to John alone. So he gives us a very different perspective. Now, this weekend's text, we're in John chapter 12. This one happens to be one of the stories that are actually recorded in th two of the other Gospels. So three, so we're going to refer to that. But John had one specific goal. He had a thesis statement. So he told us this in John chapter 20, 31. These things are written, here's the key phrase, so that you may believe. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So those two key phrases, I'm writing that you would believe, I'm writing that you might have life. Both those words are important. They appear multiple, multiple times. The word believe actually appears 98 times in these 21 chapters. I mean, he just keeps pounding it away. Believe, 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 but not just head knowledge, not just acknowledging doctrine and theology, and you know some things about God, but a belief that translates into faith and trust and action that you might believe and that you might live. And so this gospel has so much to talk and so much to say about the new life that we have in Christ. So uh, John chapter 5, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes has passed from death to life. 
You hear his word, you believe. So uh, many people talk about, you know, John 3.16, the, the most famous passage, that you believe and you have everlasting life. And they think, well, yeah, sure, when I die, I get to spend eternity in the presence of God. That is true. But John talks far more about the life in the here and now, that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was walking away from God. I've turned around and that I have life in the here and now. So John writes with this one goal, I want you to believe and I want you to, uh, to live. And frankly, that's the same goal that we have in preaching through the book. Uh, as I pray into it each week and as we go through the months, I always know that there are people who are struggling with these truths. Uh, do you, first of all, believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God? And secondly, have you placed your faith in him? Have you stepped into new life? It's why we're doing this study. So the book breaks into two easy parts, a uh, 30,000 foot view, two easy parts. The first half is the first three and a half years. The second half is one week in Jesus' life. So last spring, we covered up to John 1 through 11, Jesus' public ministry, and we ended with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and then the religious leaders making this final deadly decision that this guy has to die. We've got to get rid of him, and Jesus leaving Jerusalem, and his public ministry comes to an end. In chapter 11, near the end, it says, and he no longer walks publicly among them. So now we're entering into the second half. We're up to John chapter 12. And literally at John chapter 12, if you can imagine this, we've been fast forwarding through three years and 11 chapters, pretty quick pace, moving right along. We get to chapter 12 and it is like we slow this thing right down to a crawl. And it is like frame by frame by frame by frame, the next nine chapters will walk us through a seven day period. So much focus on the passion of the Christ. So that's the 30,000-foot view, if you will. So we're going to pick up the story where we left it off. Lazarus has been raised from the tomb. Jesus has been out of town. He comes back into town, and we are now into chapter 12. That was one year of sermons all in record right there. Six days before the Passover, John 12, 1. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I think if we were to summarize this down to this question, I have to ask you the question, do you know and love Jesus? Do you know and love Jesus? Because this thought comes out of this text that when you really know and love Jesus, you cannot help but worship. It's quite actually a simple story. It's a straightforward lesson, if you will. 
But it has a deep, deep impact if we will rest in the story and if we will get down into it. So I want to do three things. We're going to just walk through the story. We'll unpack some of the details. Then we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Mary's devotion. We will look at Judas' objection, Jesus' response. And then like we always do, typically, we will say, and so what? Uh, does it have anything to do with us? So the story is pretty simple. But let me just set up the context. So John, and I've said this many times, John, more than any other of the gospel writers, loves to time stamp his book. So he mentions the Feast of Passover. Uh, this is the third mention of that, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Dedication. He's always putting a timeline in so that we can track over the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. So the last timestamp we had was back in chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, if you know that celebration. That is at the beginning of December. So it's the winter months, it's the December, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and now we fast forward to chapter 12, we're up to Passover. So we are in late March, early April, three to four months have happened. So what happens in that in-between? This is interesting because if you're tracking Jesus like on a fitness app like Strava or something, you're going to see him yo-yoing back and forth. So he is in Jerusalem, and they decide that they want to kill him, and it says, so he escapes across the Jordan, he goes up the north side, and he is hanging out where John used to baptize. And then he gets word, chapter 11, verse 1, that his buddy Lazarus is sick, and in chapter 11, verse 7, he says, let's go back to Judea, and he goes two miles south of Jerusalem to Bethany, and there you have the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But then you hear again this voice, we got to get rid of this guy, we got to kill him. And so Jesus again escapes from the Jewish leaders, chapter 11, verse 54, and now he goes north into Ephraim. So he's been Jerusalem, north, Judea, north, Bethany, back now in chapter 12. Just interesting tidbits. I know you're interested, I'm interested, so therefore you're interested. And a dinner is offered in his honor. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, think through those three to four months. What had been happening? since the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Somewhere in the midst of that, Lazarus was raised from the dead. We don't know precisely. Was it closer to the Feast of Dedication? Had he been alive several months? Or had he been only alive maybe a couple weeks? But somewhere in there, Lazarus has been raised. Now, Bethany is a small village, and you've got to think this, that Lazarus has become a little bit of a local celebrity. He had to have been. So you got Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Apparently three single adults living together, brothers and sisters, in the same house, and there had to have been a ton of questions. Many of those people would have been at his funeral. They would have been there when they buried him. They would have heard the mourners. They might have been there when Jesus called him out of the tomb, and now he's like this local celebrity. Lazarus, you were in the tomb four days. What was it like? And are you actually happy to be back? I mean, that's an interesting question. Now, the details. Passover. It was six days before the Passover. So just dig in. The Passover starts Friday evening at sundown. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is the Passover. So if this is six days before, just do the math. You go back. And so it is either sundown on Saturday or it is Sunday. I think it's sundown Saturday. It's the Sabbath before, they've gone through the Sabbath day where they don't do any work, and now the sun has gone down, so it is technically Sunday, in their mind's eye, Sunday begins at sundown on Saturday, and so they throw a party, and Simon is the host. Now, our text doesn't tell us that, but Matthew and Mark tell us that this dinner is host by a guy named Simon who happened to have been a leper, and who was there? Who was the cast in this party? Well, at least 20 people 
probably more. Uh, There's many, many artist renditions. Just get online and Google Simon's Dinner or the Dinner at Bethany, and you'll come up with, there are dozens of these paintings like this, some old, some new. And you, in your own mind's eye, if you're an artist, you could think through, as you're reading the details of the story, if you're trying to paint the picture in your mind, how would I paint this picture and all the various people who would have been there? But there is Martha, who is serving, and in this context, she's not complaining, There is Lazarus, who interestingly never says a word. Now, some people say, of course, he had two sisters. He couldn't get a word in edgewise. But (laughs) Lazarus is silent. The whole New Testament, there's not a single word from Lazarus. And so when we get to eternity, I guess we're going to ask today, like, do you speak? And tell us a bit of your story. And then there is Mary serving. You've got the disciples. And in John's account, Judas is the only one with a speaking role. The other gospels, the disciples do say some words. And later in the evening, the crowd, the word gets out that Jesus is there and they start to show up and then ever present in the background, hovering. So how would the artist paint this? You've got the religious leaders who are hovering off in the background and they see all these people gathering and they're like, we've got to put a stop to this. And then the spotlight shines in on Mary. Mary takes center stage. And Mary does something that we might think is a little weird, at least I think it's a little weird, to her modern ears. She does something extreme, and we're going to get to that. But when you understand the cultural norms, this idea of taking a vial of perfume and pouring it on the feet and wiping her hairs, uh, wiping his feet with her hair, maybe it's not as strange as what we might think. So think through hospitality. You get invited to somebody else's home, or you invite some people into your home. So you want to make the guest feel welcome. And welcome in that time and in that place involved at least four things for your guest. Water, oil, perfume, and a kiss. Those four things were prepared in advance so that when that guest came... So water, what was the water about? Well, washing of the feet, because it was a dry, dusty climate. They wore probably sandals or maybe even barefoot from time to time. Their feet were sweaty, the dry dust. How many of you were at kickoff last weekend? Handful of you? Uh, Did you notice your feet when you got home? Uh, Four hours out on this field at the back, even a grassy field, but dusty field. Literally, when we got home, my shoes, it happened to be these shoes, were completely covered in dust and up my legs. But no problem, because in our day, you just jump in the shower, you wash it off, you throw the shoes in a bucket of soapy water, you scrub them, and boom, they're all white again. But in that day, there weren't showers and baths and indoor plumbing like what we've got. And, of course, you're ahead of me. Some of you are like, yeah, but the Romans built all those bathhouses. That's true. The Roman Empire was famous for building these public bathhouses where people could come and and clean up, but they were typically in the larger urban centers. And a small village like Bethany, if you wanted to bathe, more than likely you would go bathing out in the creek or the river or some pond, or even more likely than that, you would capture rainwater in a barrel, or you might bring home buckets of water from the local well, and you would have a sponge bath from time to time. But there was no soaking in a 100-gallon bathtub and letting all that water just drain out. That was unheard of. So the feet are washed. The servant has met them at the door and washed the feet, and then the servant does something unique, offers them a dab of oil, pours a little oil on their, on their hand. What was that oil for? It was to soothe their skin. 
the sun-scorched uh, skin, the sun, the brightness, the heat, the wind blowing. And so literally to rub onto the skin, to brighten the countenance, to, to soothe them from those, that, that, that sun. Additionally, you would give them a drop or two of perfume. Now, if the oil was scented, maybe you accomplished both in the same time. And you're like, what was the perfume about? Well, you already know what the perfume is about, right? Like, think it through. It is a dry, dusty, Middle Eastern, hot, hot, hot culture. And just like us, those people sweat. What happens when you sweat? Like, smell that person next to you. Yeah, maybe you know. So, we just don't sanitize it, don't clean it up. They had BO just like we have BO. So, a little bit of scented oil, a little bit of perfume was all the better because it could cover up some of that ever-present smell. Now, this was brought home to me in a very vivid way. So, six or eight years ago, Carol and I had the the privilege of being in present-day Turkey, so Asia Minor, where the seven churches of uh, Revelation 2 and 3, with a group of North American church planters, and then on to Istanbul and just touring some of these areas where the New Testament scriptures were written. And the first thing to strike me as we're walking down the street the very first day was the ever-present smell of men's cologne was overpowering as we walked those streets. You could smell a guy coming a half block away from you with all this cologne on him. And then as you got in closer quarters with some of these guys, you realized why they had dumped so much cologne on them. Because underneath that cologne, in that dry, hot, dusty culture, there was another smell that they were covering up. So finally, the oil, the water, the perfume, and then the host would appear and give a kiss, a kiss of welcome to their home, a little bit like Pastor Freddie, always kissing people. But think this through. If you had 20 sweaty guests show up, even if you gave them the perfume, more than likely you might still say, you know what, folks, let's eat on the patio tonight. And so more than often, more often than not, these dinners would have been held in an outdoor courtyard. So we do the same thing today. I'm not going to bug you with a longer time. You know this. We do the very same thing. You get invited over. You invite some people to your house. Uh, You might shower and put on clean clothes before you go, right? And if you don't have time for a shower, you will at least put on some pit stick. You'll comb your hair. If you're a lady, you might touch up your lipstick. And then you arrive, and the host greets you, and they're like, handshake. Or if you know them well, they might get a hug. There's no water for your feet because we assume in our culture your feet are clean. You've got shoes on. However, I learned this as an American. In Canada, you offer to take your shoes off. I didn't do that at first. You just plow right in. Didn't realize it was a custom, and why? Because with the weather that we have across the land and the the farming culture and coming in out of the barn, and then you've got mud and sleet and snow and all this inclement weather, and your shoes are dirty, so don't go tracking into somebody else's house. Offer to take your shoes off, for goodness sake. And then the host will take your jacket and say, come on in, welcome here, and you know what? Dinner's going to be 20, 30 minutes. How can I make you comfortable? Can I give you a glass of water or juice? Can I get you a cup of wine? And if you happen to know them, and if you were rushed a little bit, you came straight from work, but you know them well enough, and you're like, you know what, hey, would you mind, could I just slip into the washroom? I, I just want to wash my hands. Like, I just got to splash some water on my face. It's been a long day, and I, just, I, I came. Like, anybody done this? You're with me. This is hospitality. And there's lots of corollaries between their day and our day, for sure. You want to have somebody over, and you want to honor them. But what Mary does is far more than just hospitality. Because first of all, as we noted, it's not her home. It's Simon's home. 
So she's not even the host. And then secondly, the meal is already in progress. So we would assume that the water and the oil and the perfume and the kiss were already offered when Jesus got there. And now the meal is in progress. And Mary does something astonishing when she takes the role of the servant, pours out this extravagant offering, undoes her hair, and wipes Jesus' feet. And even more powerful when you consider, you have to consider this, that this was obviously not a spontaneous emotional outburst because she had the oil with her. Think that through. She left her home to go to Simon's home. She obviously had stuck that flask of oil in her purse or satchel or whatever, carried it along with her. She somehow had planned in advance, I'm going to do this act at Simon's house. Three things that we see, her humility, her extravagance, and her complete abandon. Images of the gospel, and images the question about our own life. Mary took this role that only the lowliest household servant would be assigned. In that time and in that place, a Jewish uh, master would not ask if his servants were of Jewish heritage. They wouldn't even ask their Jewish servants to wash the feet. If you were a foreign worker, then you would be assigned this job because feet were offensive. Feet were nasty and smelly and dirty. They'd been on the streets of dirt, the open sewer, the manure from the marketplace. And every culture, you will know this, Every culture, if you've traveled the world, has gestures that we don't think are offensive here in North America, but are offensive in other cultures. Have any of you run into that issue? Yeah, if you've traveled a bit, you might have been told. So we know very well, if you're driving down the highway and somebody gives you the one-finger salute, you know in North America they're upset with you, right? You all get that, right? Like, don't look all, like, holier than thou. You've all seen it. I get it. In North America, we give the thumbs up. That's a good thing. It's not such a good thing in other parts of the world. We give the A-OK sign here. That is not such a good thing in other parts of the world. So 15, 20 years ago, we're in India, and as part of our training going in India, we were told, whatever you do, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not show the bottom of your feet to anybody else. Because the bottom of your feet are offensive, and so you need to learn as North Americans, when you sit down, do not cross your legs. Do not put that foot up because the bottom of your sole goes out. And so we had to learn, and it's amazing how quickly you sit down and it's just a custom. We cross our legs. Never point with your foot. The foot is offensive. Same in this culture, and yet Mary is kneeling at the feet of Jesus, and what Mary is saying at the lowliest part of Jesus' body, you are much worthier than I am. What Mary is willingly saying in her humility is, I am the lesser one and you are the greater one, Jesus. Secondly, the extravagance of this gift. So it's in the text, I don't have to spend a lot of time there, a pound or a liter of the most expensive oil and perfume in the day. It came from the Himalayan mountains, came from a long ways away, North India, Nepal, from a plant that bears its name, spikenard. And it's still a thing, you can Google it, you can order it online if you want, or better yet, you can go downtown Abbotsford and you can buy oil of spikenard right here in town. Now, interestingly, that this one ounce is 15 bucks in Abbotsford, back in the day, the equivalent would have been $250 for one ounce, or about $30,000 no, $30, for the... I did the math wrong. Just You do the math on your own. It's very expensive. <laughs> it was a full year's wages of a worker, so minimum wage, 30 grand a year for an average worker, and there's 12 or 14 ounces, so you can do the math on that. You go, where did Mary get this? There's a lot of speculation. 
Was it a family heirloom? Was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus wealthy people? Maybe they were. Maybe it was passed down from their parents. Maybe it was Mary's dowry that was never given because she never married and she had hung on to it. Maybe it was Mary's preparation for her own burial that she would be anointed with this oil, but the cost of this gift stirs up some controversy, and the point is this. Mary is saying to Jesus, you are worth my everything. There is no cost too expensive for me to express my worship. That's an interesting thought. How much money do you earn in a year? Whatever you earn, whatever your salary is, what kind of gift could you buy with your annual income and literally pour out that gift? In worship. Each one of us has to ask that question. Does my generosity reflect the generosity of Jesus? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us. And you need to just stop there and ponder that. The love of Christ controls, constrains, squeezes me. It boxes me. And the love of Christ is so great. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. That why? Those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. His love is so great, it compels me, it squeezes me, it boxes me, and I can do nothing other than live my life for him who loved me so much that he gave himself for me. Amen? And finally, we see her complete abandon. And we see this in the intimacy of the fact that she pulled the pins out of her hair and she let her hair down. Now, we might not think much about it, but in that culture... A woman in that day would only have done that behind closed doors with her own family. The only people to see a woman in that culture with her hair down were her parents, her brothers and sisters, if she was married, her husband and her children, inside her home, in the privacy, in the intimacy of that family circle. And that is still true today in many Eastern countries, certainly among Muslim countries where women will not uncover their hair in public, and many Arabic countries as well. A woman keeps her hair up and covered, and the hair down speaks of intimacy. It speaks of openness. It speaks of a full abandon. I want to know you and be known by you. And what's interesting is not just Jesus receives her intimacy, but that entire wedding party, not wedding party, that entire dinner party is exposed to her in this state of what disheveledness, we might say. And you're like, Mary, what are you on about? And Mary's like, I don't care what anyone else thinks of my worship. I'm full out abandoned to the Lord. Now, and I'm studying this, there's an echo here. Some of you might already have gone there in your mind. There was another Old Testament worship experience. Do you remember this? When a guy got so enthralled in worship to the Lord that he literally stripped down to his loincloth. He was dancing in his underwear. Do you remember that story? King David, who on the return of the ark, and you're like, David, what is going on in your mind, buddy? And Michael, his wife, looks out and sees him, and it says Michael despises him for his unashamed, unabandoned worship. Here you have Mary in the similar situation, and what Mary is saying is, I am giving my life to you entirely, Lord. There's not a part of me that I'm holding back from you. Her humility, her extravagance, and her complete abandon. Then we see Judas' objection. Judas, verse 4 and 5, why this waste? Judas was the first Mennonite mentioned in the New Testament. <laughs> Why this waste? 
Now, Matthew and Mark actually tell us that it wasn't just Judas, that the other disciples as well were indignant. And I think there's two parts. If you're putting yourself into that dinner party, if I'm putting myself there, there's two pieces to this. I think first, this display of emotionalism, oh my goodness, tone it down, woman, what is with you? And then secondly, why this waste? Do you know what could have been accomplished with this? You could have just put a couple drops on Jesus. It's a strong-smelling perfume. It lasts for days. Why didn't just a few drops and then sell the rest? But for Judas, there is something deeper. His motivation is not pure. Mary's was pure. His is not. Because Judas, we're told, and we get the context, and as we move on, we hear this. Judas is all about the money. And for Judas, money had become an idol in his life. Judas, we're told here, was a thief. Now, obviously, the disciples didn't know it because they would have pulled the money bags away. He was their treasurer. Like, think this through. The chair of the stewardship team is a thief. Wow, that's awesome. Great. He goes to the Pharisees following this. Money is such an idol that he literally sells Jesus out. He goes to the Pharisees and he asks them the question, what will you pay me? What will you give me? How much money for me to deliver Jesus to you? And for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays his Lord. Now, you know this. Every single person in this room and listening, you know this, that we need money to get by in this world. Money makes the world go round. You got to pay your bills, your mortgages, you got to buy food, all that kind of stuff. But for Judas, money had become something more. Money was an idol in his life. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible has more to say about money than any other topic than God himself. Did you know that? That's fascinating. Old and New Testament, the second topic to God himself is money. In other words, it is a big deal because it is full of such danger. And as you read both Old and New Testament, there's a lot of times where people in ministry get messed up with money. So Balaam and Balak, do you remember the guy, the donkey talked to him, Balaam? Balak, King Balak, hired him. He paid him. Would you go curse the people of God? And he's like, how much will you pay me? And he goes and he curses the people of God. There's Elisha and Naaman and Gehazi. So Elisha heals Naaman, is a ruler. He comes to him, he has leprosy. He heals him and Naaman, who's a wealthy man, says, let me pay you something. And Elisha's like, nope, I did my service unto the Lord. You don't owe me anything. Gehazi, his servant, hears that conversation. And when they leave, he saddles up his horse and he follows him out and he goes, hey, by the way, my boss changed his mind. Can I get that cash that you were gonna give to my boss? And so Paul will instruct young Timothy to warn the wealthy about the dangers of money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And obviously Judas is going to be pierced with the pang of selling Jesus out. And Jesus will literally say, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I'm going to just pause right there because what I just said was Paul instructs Timothy to warn the wealthy. And I think what we do is typically we're like, yeah, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, you need this passage. Those wealthy people. Let me remind you, friends, if you're in this room, if you live in Western Canada, in fact, if you live in North America, we are the world's wealthy. We are, right? Can you please acknowledge that? Statistically, if you earned, last year on your tax return, you earned more than $10,000. Did you know that you're wealthier than 80% of the world's population if you earn ten grand? 
Did you know if your tax return was 50 grand or higher, which is most of us, you are wealthier than 99% of the world's population? Is that not shocking? It means we, from a biblical point of view, we, every single one of us, are the wealthy in the world. Anywhere else on the planet looks to North America, looks to Canada, and goes, you guys have it made. And the warning of Scripture, do not allow this idol to destroy you. And we could go really deep in that rabbit hole, and we'll come back to it eventually. Y'all like money on sermons. It's yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But Judas' betrayal and the religious leaders' plan to kill Jesus identifies these two idols. The corrosive nature of money and power. Uh, they had said over at the end of chapter 11, if we let this guy live, we're going to lose our place. Rome is going to come and take away our power. And Judas here sells him for just a bit of money. Now, Jesus' response is critical. Leave her alone. Verse 7 and 8, leave her alone. And then a very interesting phrase when he says, you know what, the poor you're always going to have with you. And that little phrase can be easily misunderstood. And it's an interesting statement, and we need to be really, really clear that Jesus was not saying, forget about the poor. That's not what he was saying. He said, the poor you will always have with you. And that line is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 15. And so if you go back to the Old Testament, you read Deuteronomy 15, you will find out that that entire chapter in its context is the compassion that the nation is supposed to have towards poor people. In fact, the Old Testament would say it would be God's ideal that there would be no poor people among you, never, but life happens. And so we set up an entire structure of caring for those who've fallen on hard times and literally a seven-year structure where you forgive the debts at the end of every seven years so they can reset their financial plans. There should be no poor among you. But tragedy happens, job loss, death comes to a home, the crops fail. There are always going to be people who bump up against financial challenges. So put some structures in place, help them get back to work, help sustain the widow and the orphan who have been left alone. Jesus cared for the poor. But what he is saying here is this sacrifice goes beyond just the poor. She's actually getting me ready for my burial. She's getting me ready for my burial. What, what, what's interesting is that this little oil, we are told lasts a long, long time. That's why it was so precious, because you could put a few drops on and it would last multiple days. Now imagine Jesus who has been drenched with this oil and he is six days away from his death. And more than likely, he doesn't go have a full bath or shower like we do. And every day throughout that week and maybe right up to the cross, Jesus is smelling the scent of that offering that is on him. She's preparing me for my burial. And then Matthew 26 and Mark 14 tell us this. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later, remembering a woman named Mary who gave her all to Jesus. And in her act, the gospel is played out. A dying to herself, a dying to her pride, a dying to her reputation and even her possessions. And the idea of laying one's life down. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love this quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Mary lays down her possessions, her pride, her reputation. But you will well know that there is also a greater gospel story behind this story. That in this context, there's a true and better Mary 
Mary humbles herself, that's true, but think of Jesus. Jesus, who in the very nature God, took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, came and walked among us. Mary breaks a flask and pours out that oil, but Jesus' body is broken and his blood is poured out for us. Mary makes herself of no reputation and and we are told that Isaiah 53, that Jesus will be highly exalted, but before that, that his appearance is gonna be so marred, he will have no beauty that we would esteem him. He would be rejected by men, a man of sorrows. It was God's will to crush him to be made empty, to be made of no reputation. And I thought, what a great place for us to begin as we start another ministry year, just simply reminding ourselves of the gospel message that is preached through the life of Jesus. Six days before the Passover, we're told. This is going to be our focus throughout the year. The Passover, remembering that night when the angel of death passed over that home, put the blood of a lamb on the door or the lentil, and I will pass by. And we inherently know the brokenness of our world, and we inherently know in studying it that the root of that is our being out of sync, out of relationship with the Father. And we know that there is only one way back, and you hear this again and again and again. We talk about it so often that Jesus comes to take on human life and to live the life that none of us were able to live, a perfect sinless life. And then he takes that life and he walks to Calvary and he dies the death that we deserve to die. He rises from the tomb and then he turns to us and he says, I did it for you. Because God in his wisdom and God in his great plan, God in his love has allowed a substitute. The Old Testament, the Lamb of God uh, or or the, the spotless Lamb of the Passover and in the New Testament, behold the Lamb of God. And so somewhere along the journey of our life, we come to this point where we say, okay, God, I take my hands off. I'm done trying to fix the mess of my own life. I'm ready to lay my life down and to receive the life you've promised me. I'm willing to follow your will and your ways for my life. And so I surrender and I say yes. Thank you for your free gift of salvation. And I have to ask you that question, have you done that? Have you responded to the offer of life? Or as I asked the question earlier, do you love Jesus and does your life reflect that? And I was pressed this week as I'm looking at this story, do I actually love Jesus like Mary in this humble, extravagant, full-out abandon? Or am I actually, I think I am, more like the disciples who when I see something like this, I have a tendency to say, tone it down, woman, tone it down. And I remembered a prayer of A.W. Tozer 60, 70 years ago. He wrote this in pursuit of God. Pulled out the book and pulled it up and it says this, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. It has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty. Still show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. And I don't know about you, 
But I read a prayer like that, and I have to look in the mirror and go, oh my goodness, how long has it been since I have had a desire like that? To say, God, you know what? I need to confess. I'm not sure I even long and desire, but I want to. I want to know you. I want to desire to desire you. I want to want you. John 5, 24, remind yourself. Whoever hears my word and believes has passed from death to life. We look at Mary and we're like, of course you were happy, Mary. You had your brother back. But look at our life. Jesus has called us from death to life. We were dead people walking. Everything a mess, a battle with sin and Satan and the world. Constantly losing until Jesus steps in. And so it pushes us to this question, this big idea. That when you really know and love Jesus, you cannot help but worshiping him. And so do you love Jesus? And is there enough evidence in your life that people would look at you and say, you know what? That person obviously loves the Lord. When we're tempted to say to ourselves or to somebody else, and I think we do this in the West, tone it down. Tone it down. I think what we really need to do is pull out the flask that is our life and break the neck of the jar and pour ourselves out and to say to the one who was poured out for us, take my life, Lord. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. I'm Mission Campus, East Campus. Would you stand with us too? We're gonna do something strange, so you gotta help me out here. We're gonna sing the words to an old hymn and the words to this hymn, particularly the, the third, fourth, the, 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 the whatever, the last three verses of this really walk through the story of Mary. So don't leave me hanging here. Help me out, okay? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Every power as thou shalt choose. Okay, you're dragging, so pick it up. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only.